It's been quite a few years ago now, but it was a typical, a typical weekday morning. And um, where the basketball court now sits was a, a building that was our educational building. And um, it has long since been used by the fire department as an experiment in training their, their young uh, firefighters. But Kathy, my wife, and some others that were assistants with her ran a preschool there for some 20 years. And on that particular morning, Kathy was surrounded and outnumbered by <clears throat> four-year-olds. And um, the phone rang, and uh, she had some helpers, and so she had to step aside into the little covey. It was kind of a little office, more of a closet than anything. And uh, there was a phone in there, so Kathy said, can you keep an eye on the kids? The phone's ringing. And she stepped in there. And without her knowing it, that particular phone call and then a second phone call later that afternoon um, would change uh, our perspective and change our lives, mark us in a way that a single phone call um, scarcely does. The man was calling from San Jose, California. We didn't know him, and his name was Roy Pilcher. Roy was just about 80 years old at the time, and he talked to Kathy on the phone and spoke to her for a little while, and I won't go into all the conversation, but it ended up that she, he wanted to speak with me as well. And so that later that afternoon, I called him and had a conversation with him, and that conversation affected me and impacted me more than I can tell you, because it's so clear. And then backing up the phone call was an act that has affected every one of you. Roy Pilcher has affected every one of you without you even realizing it. And so I'm going to tell the rest of that story as we come to the end of the message. So you'll have to hang in with me. It's one of those preacher tricks to keep you engaged so that you take in the message today. This morning, I'd like you to open your Bible with me to a passage of Scripture that really kind of rocked my world when I first understood what it was saying. And this was about, this was in the, the spring, the early springtime before we moved here 31 years ago. But I was uh, working through the book of Isaiah at the time with the church that we served in Northern California. And when I came upon this passage, I was fascinated with it for a number of reasons. One, of course, is how relevant it was, how timely its message was, even though it was written 2,700 years before. This passage is 2,700 years old. And the prophet Isaiah is inspired by God in a way that is a little bit shocking uh, unless you've read a lot of the Bible, it's amazing all the different ways that God communicates with us. And one of the ways he does it is by storytelling, using an analogy or using a parable. In other words, taking a story and taking it and laying it next to the reality so that you can see the point that he's making. And this is a case where God does this through his prophet, and in this, in this particular uh, chapter, we have what we would title the Song of the Vineyard. 
And it's a song that God takes up something that ancient Israel well understood and were quite familiar with. The, the life of the vine grower, the life of, in that uh, agricultural uh, setting, all the work and effort and hardship that would go into building and removing the rocks and terracing and, 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 and protecting and building a tower in it to watch for invaders and all that would go into having a vineyard at that time. Great effort. And then on top of it, seeking out the best and choicest uh, vine that you could possibly come up with so that you would be assured of a harvest of rich, delicious, scrumptious grapes. And so this story, God uses this imagery to teach us about something, about his people and about what he wants from his people and about how different his people are to be in this world of ours. And as we move through this section of scripture, you're going to find Uh, you may even be quite shocked at how timely it is and how impacting it is when you think of the culture in which we live and how that culture around us and its ways, its approaches, how it copes with hardships in life, how much it affects us and how easily we are drawn into its ways, its practices, its ways of coping. So you'll see this with me. But... The song of the vineyard, in the song we learn of God's heart and his design for his people. But in this song, it's a sad song. It's not a happy song. It's not a joyful song. And God's heart is grieved over his people and how they had strayed so far from what his design and purpose and will was for them. And so instead of bearing fruit, as he intended, they produced and became only worthless grapes. Now today is the first part of a two-part message. This one is in Isaiah 5, and then next week we will look again at a different vineyard and a different plan under the new covenant and where you and I uh, come into that plan, and we'll be doing that next week. So for right now, what I'd like you to see is these three simple points in the outline. The first one, as we look at this passage, is the song being expressed. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Through the prophet, God says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. And right off the bat as we take all of Scripture to bear on interpreting this passage, I take that to mean God the Father is giving this song through the prophet to Israel. He's giving it to them, and it's a song for Christ, his Son, his well-beloved. And so look at it again, verse 1, thinking of it as God the Father speaking and speaking concerning his Son, and his son's vineyard. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard, my well-beloved and a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he dug it all around 
removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, obviously, but it produced only worthless grapes. The song is expressed in real simple terms, terms that they would easily be able to mentally picture. And then he goes on and not only expresses the song, but now he explains it. What's the meaning of this song? Verse 3 through 7, look at it with me. And now, O inhabitant of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground and I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain, on it. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So now we know God is using this parable of a vineyard and his desire for good, healthy grapes and a a rich harvest. And instead of that, he got worthless grapes, wild grapes, useless grapes, So it did not bear fruit. And he's grieved in his heart. You can even feel the heart of God where he says, what more could I have done? He goes out of his way to say, I have done this and I've done this and I've provided this. I've done everything that you need. Is everything okay back there? Okay. We're having a little conversation here. I just wondered. (laughs) Um, So, the song is expressed. The song's explained. God's talking about his people. And he says, I'm going to therefore remove it. And it will become a briar patch, trampled underfoot. My hopes for it have been dashed. Now, the third thing I want us to see And this is where it becomes quite relevant for all of us to recognize and understand, is the song is expounded then by the prophet. As the prophet expounds this song, he describes what these worthless grapes look like. He gets more particular. And the way he does it in the the verses that follow down through verse 24 is he does it by pronouncing six consecutive words woes on the land. And when a prophet says, woe to this people, he's serious. 
It speaks of judgment. It speaks of chastening. It speaks of difficulty and hardship that would come as a result of the disobedience of the people. So the song is expounded as the prophet describes what he means, what God means by worthless grapes. Now, as we walk through these verses and these six woes, please pay attention now. I don't apologize that this isn't a wonderfully feel-good message. It will by the time we get to the end of it. But aren't we to preach the whole counsel of God? Aren't we to warn God's people, challenge God's people, caution God's people not to live loosely, not to live as though it doesn't matter. I've got my ticket to heaven. That's all that matters. And how I live my life and the values that guide my life don't matter. Yes, they do. They matter to the heart of God. And so he makes this so clear. So these six woes that follow give us what we might call woe upon counterfeit living. Counterfeit living. Living lives with values and purposes and pursuits and meaning that from God's standpoint is counterfeit and therefore is worth how much? You see, it doesn't matter if you have a $1 bill that's counterfeit or if you have a $100 bill that's counterfeit or I suppose they make $1,000 bills. I've never had one. Anyone got one in their billfold? $1,000. It doesn't matter how big the bill is. If it's counterfeit, how much is it worth? Zero. Nothing. And that's the point, and that's why I'm using that particular adjective. And so how did these people live? They had all that God had provided, a beautiful vineyard with choice vine and hedged in and protected everything that they needed to live, kind of like our scriptures tell us in the New Testament, that we've been granted everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own excellence and glory. And Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are rich beyond measure, and yet we live often like paupers, and we end up producing worthless grapes. Well, God calls us to a higher and better life. Well, let's look at this, and you think about this as we walk down through, and tell me if this doesn't sound very much like the culture in which we live. Be reminded, 2,700 years ago, Isaiah diagnoses through the Spirit of God the condition of the people and and ask yourself, why does he call them worthless grapes from God's point of view? Well, the first that we see is that their lives were characterized by counterfeit security. Counterfeit security. Verses 8 through 10, look at it with me. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room. In other words, the wealthy who aren't content, who need to acquire more and more and more 
and eat up the land and the real estate and so on so that the common man can hardly find a, a corner to live in. This is how they were living. Verse 9, In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones, without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine. You know what that means? My footnote says that ten acres of vineyard will only produce Ten and a half gallons. God's curse will be upon their efforts. And a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. One bushel. So in other words, the ratio of what should be expected and what they will actually get will be the very essence of inflation. Inflation beyond degree so that the $4 that used to buy something at the market, now you can't even touch it for that. That's the idea in today's terms. Counterfeit security. They put their security in what they possessed. Didn't Jesus say that a man's life does not consist of the things that he possesses? You can't take it with you. Naked, Paul says, you came into the world, and that's exactly how you're going to leave. You're not taking anything out of it. Well, secondly, they not only were characterized by counterfeit security, much like our culture, but counterfeit pleasure. Look at verses 11 down through 17. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them, and their banquets are accompanied with lyre and harp and fender guitars and trampolines. Just making sure you're with me. Tambourines and flute and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for the lack of knowledge. And their honorable men are famished. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. What image the prophet is using. Sheol is the place of the departed dead. Synonym for hell. And he says that not only has hell opened its mouth, but it's enlarged its throat. It's found a way to manipulate its throat, its gullet, and open it up. And and death itself is swallowing up Judah and Israel because of their sin, because of my judgment upon them. And so the common man, verse 15, will be humbled, and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze 
as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. God is speaking of the destruction of his vineyard, of the captivity that would come first through the Assyrians and later through the Babylonians, where tens of thousands would be carried away. All because they chose to live counterfeit lives, counterfeit security, counterfeit pleasure, and thirdly, counterfeit confidence. Look there at verse 18 and 19. Here's the third of our woes. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed. They're mocking God. Let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. That's, that's the tone of those words. They're mocking God. They're mocking that, they're, that there's any accountability for how they live their lives at all. As though there is no accountability. There's no answering to God ultimately. But we know better from the scriptures. You know, I was thinking about this. How are we on time? We're doing all right. I was thinking about this last night, that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a familiar and popular Jesus that the world is happy to lay hold of. They, they enjoy that particular Jesus, the Jesus that makes them successful in Hollywood and the Jesus that makes them prosper as politicians and the Jesus who does all these wonderful things for them but they're not very familiar with the Jesus of the scriptures. I was reading in Thessalonians. Listen to this. Tell me, is this the Jesus that our world has any clue about? The one that they're always talking about, oh, how he just loves me unconditionally. It doesn't matter how I live or what I do. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You don't have to turn to it, but listen. Because God's heart goes out to his people when they are persecuted, when they suffer for righteousness. And he says, speaking of Christ, when the Lord Jesus shall appear from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you has been believed. See, that's the Christ that the world is unfamiliar with, but they're going to meet the one before whom they are accountable. In John 5, Jesus said the most incredible thing. He said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That's the Jesus our world is not familiar with, who will bring the world to account for having lived counterfeit lives. Well, number four is counterfeit ethics. 
Tell me if this doesn't ring uh, with a note of, uh, of uh, relevance for our day. Look there at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What has happened in our culture? I was so proud. Kathy came home from the meeting the other night, and I don't think this is confidential. If it is, I'm going to jail. (laughs) But the school board met, and they discussed the curriculum for the coming year and so on. And Kathy came home. I mean, they weren't taking up a a reformed theological uh, curriculum for the public school or anything, but they did say that we will have none of this critical race theory taught in Kettle Falls. And we, will not, and we will not have any of this sexual orientation stuff taught in our school. And we will not have this transgender issue brought up. We're not going in that direction. We're going to choose the most conservative curriculum that we can come up with. Isn't that good? Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was grateful for that. There's hope that at least there's some ethics they're holding on to because I listened to a, a place back east where a man was boasting about the fact that their elementary school, their preschool and elementary school now, was doing away with the pronouns his and her or him and she. They're going to do away with that so the kids can just kind of guess at it. Well, isn't verse 20 relevant? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't that what we see going on on many sides? Of course it is. And we must have our voice. We're not to sit back and just be passive. And when you're in a conversation with work colleagues or people and this kind of thing comes up, it's your opportunity. And now you have Isaiah 5 to go to, to prove your point. Number five, counterfeit wisdom. These these worthless grapes, God says, is because they have given themselves to counterfeit security, pleasure, confidence, and ethics. And now even counterfeit wisdom. Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in in their own sight. They are a God unto themselves. They will decide what is wise and good and wholesome and upstanding. Doesn't the scripture say the beginning of wisdom is found where? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And from there, we don't stop with fearing the Lord as we grow in relationship to him and our knowledge of him and our devotion to him. That sense of reverence increases. It does not decrease. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Number six, counterfeit manhood. 
Look at verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. The prophet's being rather satirical, isn't he? Certainly he is. I think my favorite is the dignified late middle to, to later middle-aged guy who looks very dignified. He's very rich and wealthy. And the commercial ends with this drink in his hand, and he says, stay thirsty, my friends. Valiant. That's as far as we've come as a culture. It's sad, isn't it? Verse 23 who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Counterfeit security, counterfeit pleasure, counterfeit confidence, counterfeit ethics, counterfeit wisdom, and counterfeit manhood all amounts to one big zero from God's point of view. But instead, and I'll give you this assignment. It would be fun next, next week. After church, you could meet with me and say, hey, pastor, here's what I came up with. But I would like to know, where is our security found? Where is our pleasure to be found? The, the sign hanging over our doorway to the church says, oh, taste and see that the Lord <laughs> is good. Taste and see. Take pleasure in the Lord. Where's our confidence? Where's that to be found? I am confident of this very thing, Paul wrote, that he that hath begun a good work in me will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Confidence in God and his promises. All of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God. Counterfeit ethics. Does the Bible say anything about ethics? Anything about being honest and upright and trustworthy? Anything at all? I think so. How about wisdom? Right? Wisdom. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament. All pointing to the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Christ is made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And manhood. What is manhood from God's point of view? What is a man? What's he to be like? Well, the perfect man was Christ himself. If we want to know what manhood looks like, take a long look at him and then say, Lord, I'm far from that, but could you make me a little more like you? Because that's manhood. Tender enough to get down on his knees and embrace someone eaten up with leprosy when no one else wanted to be within 50 yards of him. Tender enough to hold children on his lap and bless them. Tender, understanding, 
a heart for people. And at the same time, bold as a lion in the face of the religious leaders and Pharisees who were on the attack. Manhood, what's it look like? Well, verse 24 kind of concludes this parable, this song. And it tells us what would happen to that ancient vineyard. But not only what would happen, but why. Why the worthless grapes? And why is this judgment coming? Why? God tells us in verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble. I was listening to this man doing an interview down in Greenville, California, who experienced the Dixie Fire and lost his home. His home was built up on a shelf, and there was a valley down below, and the fire had jumped the opposite mountain and was coming down. And he said that when it got to the base of the mountain, the valley that was below his home, he naively was standing out on the edge of his property with a hose, thinking, I'll keep my property wet here and I'll be all right. And he said that that fire hit the bottom of the valley and came up that hill, and he said he felt like it was moving 40 or 50 miles an hour. And that before it was halfway up the, up the mountain, the water in his hose was splaying back in his face just from the wind that the fire was creating. It consumed it and left nothing but stubble. And it was all he could do to drop the hose, run in the house, grab his wife, and get in the car and leave. He said we literally had seconds to get out of our house and down the road, or we'd have never made it. God is using this imagery in verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. And why? Why? God's not talking to the whole world. He's not even speaking to the whole culture. He's talking to his people Israel and the sons of Judah, the people of God. And this is what he says at the end of verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Why this calamity? Why this judgment? Why these worthless grapes represented by counterfeit living? Because they rejected and despised my word in their lives. Well, anyway... Kathy came home from preschool that day and handed me the phone number and said, this man Roy Pilcher called, and he wants to speak to you, and I'm not sure exactly what it's all about, but can you give him a call? So I called Roy, and we had a talk, unforgettable talk. And he said, well, Pastor, here's my story. I lived my whole life counterfeit. I'm now approaching 80 years of age, and I realize that I have lived my entire life in a way that was counterfeit. And he said to me, 
I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ just a few years ago, and he's completely changed my life. He said, if I'd only known earlier and sooner. But he said, Pastor, I'm a fairly wealthy man, and I have spent a lifetime buying property and real estate all over the country. I had money to just throw away. And he said, I need to know about your doctrine. I need to know what you teach as a church. I need to know from your point of view, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you preaching to people they must be born again? <laughs> and so I walked down through our doctrinal statement with Roy, never met him in my life, and shared with him all of this and told him what we believed and what our heart and passion was to reach people for Christ and for our people to grow in their relationship with him. And he said, okay, that's good enough for me, Pastor. And then he explained to me that along in the many ways that he had lived a counterfeit life, he was much like the man in the story that Jesus told who had such great crops and who had such success that instead of being generous and hearty and giving, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll build even bigger barns. Remember that story, that parable Jesus gave? And on that night, God spoke to him and said, Tonight, your soul is required of you. And then, all these possessions of yours, whose will they be then? And he said, I read that story. And he said, right or wrong, my interpretation from the Lord was, I only have a few years left on earth to live for him now that I've come to know him. And I am finding worthy causes to give away everything I have. And so he said, Pastor, I have an attorney. Here's his name. Here's his phone number. I will call him. All you have to do is call him, and he will take care of it all. And I want to give Kettle Falls Community Church a beautiful piece, pristine piece of land that overlooks the Columbia River out on the Inchileum Highway. And I want to give that to you, and you use it as you see fit for the gospel, for the, for the benefit of your people. And so that was a phone call that marked me in a couple ways. One is just his testimony of how God had rescued him from counterfeit living and had brought him into fellowship with Christ and into a saving relationship with him. Called him out of counterfeit wisdom. Called him out of counterfeit ethics. Called him out of counterfeit pleasure and all the rest. And his testimony was powerful. But not only that, every week that I stand here, the carpet under your feet, the, the, all the completely re-insulated building that's here, the removal of this platform, these, all this oak that you see, the electrical system was completely redone. This whole building was renovated, the downstairs, the drop ceiling, the new heating system, everything that upgraded this building that we've been using for the past probably 25 years since Roy did that. This is all from Roy. Roy, whom had spent his life living a counterfeit life, 
was now Christ's. And he said, I want you to have this. And he gave us this. We were able to sell the property and with the property do all the upgrades that we needed to. And so Roy has affected you with his testimony. How are we living, my brothers and sisters? Next week, we're going to look again at the vineyard. We're going to think about a vineyard that is more than Israel could have ever imagined. A vineyard and a vine. The one who said, I am the true vine. And he has put out his roots. And his vine is growing literally on every continent on the planet. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation are part of that vine. And he's bringing people to faith in himself. And someday we're going to see that the grapes, the good grapes, the fruitfulness of the vine that God wanted, that he didn't get with Israel, ancient Israel, he realized through the church, through his people, because Jesus told us that's exactly what he was going to do. And we're going to be amazed. And how that vine works is in very concrete terms. We don't see it normally, but part of the vine just branched out from us and went to Sumner, Oregon. And we have a part in that vine. And that vine's going to bear fruit. And in Pacific City, where the Masons are, and people you have reached for Christ and influenced who are now influencing others, and this vine that spreads out over the earth, someday we're going to be shocked when we stand amidst a multitude which no man can number, giving honor and glory to Christ, the true vine, and as part of his vine, branches that, that bore fruit for the glory of God. Isn't this a great text of Scripture? And it's so telling, isn't it? What a diagnosis of the culture in which we live. But in many ways, we have to remember that we're in it, but not of it. So on one hand, we have to care. And I celebrate with Kathy when the school board makes decisions like that. I'm glad for it. But there's another part of me that has to be sort of leathery. We need to toughen up a little bit. And when the culture is going to you know where in a handbasket, we need to be able to say, yeah, what's that to me? I'm a child of God. I'm in this world and I'm not of it. This can never be my home. And I live every day of my life with this. It's almost like a low-grade fever. I have a low-grade longing for heaven, longing for my home, homesick for a place I haven't even seen yet. Isn't that odd? You're homesick for a place you've never been. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Unless God creates the miracle of new birth in you and changes your nature so that your nature is in harmony with those who've already gone to glory. The miracle of new life in Christ, which draws us eventually home. Well, Isaiah chapter 5. And it would be fun if you would think about confidence, ethics, wisdom, pleasure, security. Tell me, where do we really get those things? How does God provide for each of those so that we don't chase the culture and chase its ways and go after 
its approach to acquiring those things because God says they're one great big zero. Amen? Amen. Do we have a final song, Kath? Okay. Kathy wants to sing the doxology. Let's all stand together. All right. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all of ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We thank you, our Father, for your word to our hearts this morning. We thank you for a little old man that we had never met, that you laid hands upon, and in your sovereign grace and mercy, drew him into fellowship with Christ. Thank you for Roy. We know he's gone home to be with you now. But we thank you for the way you changed him and how that benefited not only us, but many others. Thank you, Lord, that just one, one little cluster of, of good grapes, of fruitfulness, can impact the lives of so many. Thank you, Lord. Make us fruitful. Make us fruitful like you have desired, that we would bear fruit, much fruit, more fruit, and that through us you would be honored and glorified as we walk with you and bear witness to the risen living Christ who has changed us. Thank you, Lord, for each person here today. And may we each go away with that sense of your power and your presence in our lives, blessed by the truth of your eternal word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Amen.